Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, with episode 175 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, the Silver King is back once again for a special episode here of Getting Over, where we're going to break down everything that happened Friday night on AEW Dynamite, along with everything else that happened in the world of wrestling this week. Of course, we already have our WWE episode, which we published on Tuesday, and our NXT TakeOver In Your House Ultimate Preview that we published on Wednesday. Don't forget, there's an NXT TakeOver In Your House Instant Analysis coming up Sunday night as soon as that show goes off the air. But AEW once again pushed to the end of the week because of the NBA playoffs and therefore the Silver King needed to do an extra show. They're really making this difficult on my weekend and have been for the last couple of weeks and for the next couple of weeks as well. But that does allow us to do episode 175. And man, I feel like it was just yesterday that we did that 100th episode special spectacular. And here we are at 175. We're going to hit, I guess, 200 right around SummerSlam. This is incredible, crazy. Uh, You know, I appreciate you guys being with us for so long. We're well into our second year here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. And folks, that means this show is all about one thing. It's all about Defy. And that means it's all about heading on over to Apple Podcasts dropping those five-star ratings and leaving reviews to let people know how much you love this show, our traffic. We just had a record month. We need to keep growing. You know the goal is to enter the top 25 professional wrestling podcasts in North America. There's a lot of competition. This is maybe the most loaded podcast category that exists other than, I guess, general sports. Uh, But man, we need you guys to help us out. So please, long-time listeners, first-time listeners, I hope you love this show. Apple Podcasts, drop that five-star rating, hit the review. We would greatly appreciate it. Also, do not forget, especially this week, to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, because not only do we tweet live during the four major shows, not only do we tweet wrestling news, some rarely, occasionally breaking news, but generally just news of the wrestling world throughout the week. Not only do we send out videos and gifts and all those fun things, we also allow you to participate in pre- and post-show polls ahead of and after pay-per-views. And we also give you live kickoff shows on Twitter spaces ahead of special events. So what does that mean? It means that this week, ahead of NXT TakeOver in your house, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast on Twitter spaces will have a live 30-minute go-home kickoff show at 7 p.m. Eastern. We've already sent a tweet out with a reminder. All you need to do is click on that link whether you have the official Twitter app on iOS or Android or just regular Twitter on desktop or mobile web, you hit reminder, it will alert your phone when the show is beginning. You can join, listen to us, you can ask questions, you can participate. We're gonna talk 30 minutes ahead of NXT TakeOver in your house and that's before the WWE kickoff show. So you're not even gonna miss the official kickoff show if you listen to us. So please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. But today's show is not about WWE. It's not about NXT. It is primarily about AEW Dynamite. We're going to talk about that first to kick off this show. But before we're done today, 
we will be talking NJPW Dominion. I'm going to talk about the two singles matches on that card, as well as NXT UK. We had a monster women's championship match, Kaylee Ray against Maiko Satamora. Very excited to go through those. And right before we get out of here, we're going to talk to other little pieces of wrestling business involving the NWA and GCW, something I have never spoken about before, but will be speaking about today. But as I said, we're starting with AEW. And do not forget, if you want to skip around, if for some reason you don't watch AEW, you only want to hear the other stuff, check the episode description. We do have timestamps for every single segment, and that will allow you to bounce around. But as I said, we are starting with AEW Dynamite. And I believe this week's show was taped to air. So they went back to the old setup, which I prefer. I know it's kind of cool, I guess, to have some fans on the stage, like on the camera shop. But I like having the entrances. I just happen to really enjoy the hard cam across from that stage, the way that AEW has been doing it at Daly's Place basically this entire time. And they did something interesting that they put wrestlers on the hard cam side standing up beyond the barricade this week. So it looked like there were fans there cheering. They just were standing the entire show. I believe a lot of the noise was piped in because it was far too loud to just be the wrestlers that were there. It sounded like a crowd and there wasn't a crowd, but that was okay. I had no issue with any of that. And I thought it was a pretty good production. It was far better than the production last week, which I heavily criticized on this show. So definitely a step in the right direction for AEW. And I hope that as long as they're at Daly's Place the next couple of weeks, They keep this setup in style and they don't go back to what they were doing before. Uh, But yeah, let's break down the show. Lots of good, good amount of bad as well, but we'll talk through AEW right now. We had Michael Nakazawa produce a Kenny Omega video package that retold the main event from Double or Nothing as a hero overcoming adversity. I thought it was hysterical and quite well done with fake captions uh, for people speaking and an altered angle on how the match transpired. It was really good delusional heel type of stuff, so I loved it. I thought this was a huge success. Uh, Don Callis and Omega hit the ring later, with Omega joking that he had to sell a match that no one wants to see with Jungle Boy because no one believes that he can actually win the AEW championship. He said that Jungle Boy is the total package, except he doesn't have any guts. And then he cut a pretty strong promo ripping Jungle Boy apart after he made his entrance. Jungle Boy said Omega talked too much. He got a few shots in. But Omega eventually raked his eyes, and Jungle Boy almost put the champion in the snare trap before the Young Bucks ran in for the save. I've been enjoying the build to this match, I have to say, far more than I did the build to the triple threat at Double or Nothing. I'd love to see Jungle Boy have some support next week in evening things up with the Elite. Perhaps Frankie Kazarian and or Eddie Kingston could come out and kind of get his back. Just not Marco Stunt, obviously. And Luchasaurus... I'm not sure what's going on. Is he injured? Like, I, I think that's just something that I've missed. I thought he was injured and he came back from that injury, but we haven't seen him in a long time. So I'm assuming he's injured again or otherwise not available or else it doesn't make sense why he's not with Jungle Boy. Either way, this is all working for what should be a barn burner of a match in a couple of weeks. I'm very excited for Omega and Jungle Boy. Not so excited for another uh, Young Bucks, Rick Knox, special tag team match. we got a six-man, the Bucks and Brandon Cutler against Pac, Penta L0M, and Eddie Kingston. Pac no-sold Kingston, trying to pump them up backstage. Kingston made a run in the match. Bucks accidentally double superkick Cutler. Penta hit a Canadian Destroyer and a step-up Tope Conhiro. Uh, Pac finally hit a 450 splash and got Matt into a brutalizer, his submission finisher. 
Nick tried to break it, but failed. He was kicking Pac and he wouldn't let go of it. And then Pac just let go for no reason whatsoever when he would have had the match won otherwise, because he would have tapped, clearly. Eventually, Cutler got hit with a spinning back fist by Kingston and got pinned by Pac, and that's how the match ended. The Good Brothers attacked. Uh, Frankie Kazarian made the save. Like you guys, I I love the action. Again, these matches always have really good individual wrestling moves because the people who compete in them are good wrestlers. But to me, this was just a total slop fest and a complete mess of a tag team match. Rick Knox tag team matches actively make me hate tag team wrestling. And the Young Bucks, despite me knowing that they're extremely talented and having seen matches of theirs that I love, these TV matches, and it's not just because they're heels, because I've always believed they're heels, even when they were faces, it just makes me dislike them actively more and more. I don't even know what else to say, really. I just didn't think this was good in any way. I'm sure a certain someone will give it another four stars like that person did last week when it didn't deserve it at all. Um, but it just, it's just not my cup of tea, the Young Bucks in Rick Knox tag team matches. It just doesn't work. It's not good. Uh, we had a TNT championship on the line, Miro defending against Evil Uno. So this one I kind of want to talk about calmly, and I want you guys to understand my perspective here. So Uno cut a tape promo heavily relying on Brody Lee highlights to explain why he was motivated to win the TNT title back for Dark Order. And I don't know whether I was okay with it. Clearly, his family's okay with it. And that is by far what matters the most, not what I happen to think about it. As long as they're cool with it, it's fine. Negative One's basically a member of the Dark Order. But it, to me, just as a viewer, felt strange and a little bit off-putting. It's not necessarily a criticism, because as I said, what's most important is the family being okay with it. I would probably have been cool with it if they were referring to Brody Lee and saying, clearly, I have motivation for this because of Brody, and just kind of use it as part of it, but to do a video package heavily relying on his imagery for a TV match that the guy's not going to win, it just didn't feel right and fit right for me. But if it was okay with the family, and if you guys as viewers enjoyed it, then that's, you know, fine. That's your opinion. Miro dominated Uno mostly in the match, but Uno did get a short run of offense. Miro kicked out at one after a senton bomb. And Dark Order came down to cheer Uno on stage, really pump him up. There was a 2.9 near fall after Miro took a shot into a turnbuckle. Uno did Brody's discus lariat, but Miro didn't budge. Then he taunted Dark Order and won with the accolade. So if this booking had come down the line like six months from now to eventually take the TNT title off Miro because the passion and drive of Dark Order leading a member to pull off a huge upset was the finish. I think it would have been a fantastic piece of booking. However, the idea of using Brody's death and the passion it inspired just to put heel heat on Miro in what will be a forgotten TNT championship match because nothing special happened in it. That just wasn't for me, despite the match being very good. The storytelling, whether you liked it or not, worked. And the segment was executed extremely well. So that's why I'm a mixed mind of this. I'm not going to give it a 0.0 or a mark at zero because really everything else about it 
was really good, but I do question the logic and the booking decision to A, use it in the extreme way they did, and B, use it in a match where the Dark Order is not going to be victorious and do it so soon after Miro won the championship. So I, I think the positioning was wrong, but the general idea of the booking could have worked further down the line. Miro continues to look like a monster, though, I will say, and he's been booked perfectly since splitting from Kip Sabian. I hate that people are trying to now rewrite history, saying Miro was never used poorly in AEW. Everyone just had to be patient. No, he absolutely was used like shit for a while, like nine months. But they've done a total 180 with him, and both he and AEW are better for it. It's just like in WWE. Apollo Crews was booked like absolute shit, and he was actually Crews, barely used for a long time. And then they decided to get behind him, did a 180, they booked him as a face to beat Andrade about you know a year ago, and now they're booking him as a heel. You may not love his gimmick, but it's a, I think I, I do I like it, and it's a far better booking of him. So same thing for Miro. He looks like an absolute killer, a monster, and that's what this guy always should have been. It's great to see, and hopefully sooner than later, like I hope inside of eighteen months maybe he is the AEW champion because I think he's a totally deserving one. Hangman Page. And 10, Preston Vance faced Brian Cage and Powerhouse Hobbs in the main event. Uh, Hobbs had a great running crossbody and Cage actually hit a 619. He is so impressive athletically for a guy being that huge. Team Taz was ready to get the finish when Ricky Starks threw the FTW title into the ring. Cage tossed it out and Starks got pissed. So he actually jumped on the ring apron and slapped Brian Cage, who chased him backstage. Taz on commentary was supporting Starks' actions and not Cage's. 10 hit a ripcord cutter on Hobbs, followed by the buckshot lariat from Page for the win. Hangman and Dark Order then toasted after to end the show. This was similarly messy from a rule standpoint to the six-man match earlier, even though Rick Knox was not the referee. But it was far better in terms of execution, and it was a much better main event than we got last week, night and day from last week's main event. The fracturing of Team Taz definitely has me interested, but Hangman just spinning in place like this it is really starting to get frustrating to me as a viewer. Uh, the Pinnacle returned to answer Inner Circle. FTR yelled about overcoming adversity and never losing their edge like Santana and Ortiz. Sean Spears yelled about Sammy Guevara being a glorified indie wrestler. Wardlow said Jake Hager is obsessed with him and accepted the MMA-style match next week. And then MJF said he used to mark over working in the same company as Chris Jericho, but he wasted time idolizing him when he's not remotely on his level. Then he denied Jericho's challenge. This was top to bottom, the best promo segment or package that we've gotten from Pinnacle to date. So I thought they all did a really good job, even though they definitely over relied on yelling into the camera. I don't need you yelling to hear your passion. Cody, actually, when he does cut good promos, which has been not as frequent recently, and Jericho as well is another good example. They both know that how to show that they're passionate without turning red in the face and yelling. And Pinnacle has not proven that it can do that. The guys basically lean on that as a bit of a crutch, MJF included, by the way. Although MJF obviously is a great promo and he has shown passion in other ways. But in this one, he leaned on that just like the rest of them did. Uh, Jericho answered on the screen. Inner Circle then destroyed the limo that the Pinnacle pulled up early in the show. They destroyed it with sledgehammers slash tires before Jake Hager ran through it with a forklift and actually lifted it into the air. I thought that was hysterical. I'm not sure why wrestlers, though, think their opponents own the limousines that they trash. Like, this is an old wrestling thing. Those shits are all rented, right? 
and they're the responsibility of the driver or the limo company, or maybe there's an agency and it's a rental and you take out the insurance like you would a rental car. That's all they need to do. The wrestlers just need to get the insurance or make sure that they're not liable uh, before they rent it and they're good to go. So they're destroying other people's property, which really means Inner Circle should probably be sued by this limo company. But that's another story for another day. Anyway, this was all pretty good and a simple way to advance the storyline. It will be interesting to see how they pull off the Wardlow-Hager MMA cage match next week. It could go well or it could go poorly. I have to believe Hager is going to win considering he's undefeated in the cage. But maybe they're going to do something here. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what AEW will do, but I am interested to find out next week. There was a vignette for Andrade El Idolo that showed him putting on a black pinstripe white suit with leather gloves. His gimmick is face of the Latinos. He will sit down for an interview with Jim Ross next week. It's going to be interesting to see if they go with the quote unquote held down in WWE route of a promo, even if they don't say it, or if they actually attack it from a different angle and just treat him as a top star and a fresh wrestler, which is what I hope they do. Darby Allen told Sting he will not replace him as his tag team partner next week and would instead fight Scorpio Sky and Ethan Page in a handicap match. Sting tried to get him to change his mind, but eventually agreed to stay home. I thought this was a clunky segment, but ultimately did its job of establishing Darby's mindset as we discussed last week. It seems to me like this was completely taped, so I have no idea why didn't why they didn't just tape it a second time. They were talking over each other. And I know that you could say, well, that's natural. People, when they have a conversation or argument, they talk over each other. That's true, but not to that degree. And even though it may be natural in real life, this is still entertainment and television and you want things to be clear. It was really messy. They totally should have redone it, but they decided not to. The Men of the Year, which is the name of Scorpio Sky and Ethan Page. I actually like the vast majority of AEW's tag team and gimmick names. This one is terrible. Uh, answered later saying that they would use Darby as a stepping stone in AEW. I love the idea of feeling like Sting is an albatross who gets the credit that maybe Darby deserves. And I love the idea, as I said last week, of them ultimately feuding. That's where I want this to go. And I have hope that we're going to get there based on this. AEW may be a tad gun shy to actually pull the trigger, but it's my long-term hope at least. So even if this is not the catapult for that feud, if it, if it doesn't send Darby into this spiral where he decides he needs to go up against Sting, maybe just setting the seeds and planting the seeds for a turn down the line. But I love the idea of Darby Allen turning heel on Sting. I think it would be awesome. Christian Cage fought Angelico in the opener. Matt Hardy began the show with a promo about always earning more than Christian in their careers. Christian hit a diving European uppercut and the kill switch for the win. Jack Evans attacked after, but Christian took him out before Hardy hit him with the twist of fate for his second straight week. Jungle Boy saved Christian from another one. This was a fine segment. I guess they were hoping to keep any WWE flippers, people who would be checking it out with familiar faces, but it felt very TNA-esque to me. I don't know if you guys understand what I mean by that, but that's how the entire segment felt. Like, Old guys from WWE mixed with young guys, but the old guys being the entire focus of it and both kind of looking old and a little bit slow. That's just how I saw it. But we'll see if the story advances next week. And then we had Brock Anderson make his AEW debut with an in-ring segment. Tony Schiavone did a great job with like a half second pause, as I just did, after saying Brock just enough time to make your brain tick that it might possibly be Lesnar. But of course it wasn't. Cody Rhodes' highlight package now consists of heavy 
American iconography. Brock hit the ring in a pale orange polo, khaki shorts, and boat shoes. He looked like a total prep school asshole and very similar to some gear, not gear, but clothes that Arn Anderson had worn a couple times in WCW coming out to the ring. So I think it was probably on purpose. I don't know if he dresses like that normally, but that family definitely has a look. Uh, The resemblance with Arn, of course, their father and son was uncanny. They're going to be tagging him and Cody to fight QT Marshall and Aaron Solo next week. Cody cut a weak promo, then QT challenged him to a South Beach strap match on July 7th in front of fans. I'm sure fans will love it and they'll cheer Cody. So it's probably going to be a cathartic type of experience on July 7th, but holy shit, I don't really want to see that. QT hit Arn with his belt and Brock got in a couple of shots. This was maybe the best out of any of these segments involving like the Nightmare family and the factory, but man, they're just going deep into the well to like bring in other people's sons to AEW. And like, I don't even, I probably should have done a little bit of research on Brock Anderson. Like, has this guy wrestled? Is this, is he a total neophyte? Has he been training with Dustin? I don't know. It just, it's very repetitive to me. Uh, but this was the best out of the segments just because it was a little bit of a surprise to see Brock Anderson, Arn's son, come out of really nowhere. I have minimal interest in the tag team match though, and even less in the strap match. So again, I just, they're not getting me with this and I don't understand why you're having Cody. They have so much talent on that show. They had Cody possibly do a Penta feud, then they just stopped it for no reason. I have no idea why he's mixing with the low card and why that's how they're kicking off their return to touring. So I just have to mark it zero. Mark it zero! Lance Archer fought Chandler Hopkins. Archer killed this kid, absolutely murdered him as Jake Roberts filmed it on his iPhone. It was a total squash match that saw Archer immediately storm off after he won. I loved this so much. First of all, Archer never wins big matches. So you might as well get him a ton of these kind of squash victories on TV. And then after storming off, you're looking at him in a different light where, okay, this guy now, he's pissed. It's all business and he's not even gonna celebrate getting a W. This is how I've wanted Archer booked since his debut. Yes, is it typical IWC to, oh, this guy should just be a silent badass. It is. But for Lance Archer, a silent badass is a good character because he is a badass, right? So it all fits together. And I hope that, I'm not expecting it to be soon, six months, a year from now, I hope this leads to something substantial and we finally see Lance Archer win some kind of title, form a tag team, be involved in a significant feud that he wins. I'm not saying Lance Archer has been wasted in AEW. I don't believe that. But I do believe he has not been utilized to his full potential because to this point, all he's done is put over other people. Yes, there's a role for that. But when you have a monster, the monster needs to win occasionally. And Lance Archer never wins. The women's match of the evening was Nyla Rose against Layla Hirsch. There was a great run by Hirsch after the typical double commercial break in the seventh quarter hour. She had an Escalera springboard moonsault, but failed to get the fall. Rose caught Hirsch on the ropes and hit an avalanche beast bomb for the win. This was an extremely fun match and a good win for Nyla Rose. When I talk about SmackDown giving the women more time, this is what I'm talking about. Imagine from Friday Night SmackDown this week, and I'm only talking about it because I watched it immediately before Dynamite. Liv Morgan getting to fight Carmella in a six, seven, eight minute match and getting the win. You're going to say, holy shit, Liv Morgan's pretty impressive. Instead, that match is like two and a half, three minutes for the second straight week. 
It makes all the difference in the world having that extra time because you know they have the talent level to wrestle. And you got to give AEW credit because even though they still treat the women as, I don't even want to say secondary, tertiary, like to AEW, it's like men's singles, men's tag team, and then women. It's the third most important division. Even though they treat it third in that regard, they've made significant strides in the quality of wrestling and the presentation of the women's division, even on weeks where they shove it into this standardized segment late in the show. Britt Baker cut a promo in a stairwell for some reason. She said the best women's champion in AEW is her, and she's that despite only holding the title for a couple of weeks. She said the title makes people like Nyla Rose, but she makes the title and is going to take the division to another level. So I do think it's pretty interesting that they're having Britt Baker, a heel, go after Nyla Rose, a heel, as her first challenger. When they have other faces, I assume they're going to do Baker and probably Chris Statlander, I would guess, for her first major face feud. Maybe Thunder Rosa comes back and and that's a second face feud down the line. That's a a rematch at the next pay-per-view. I could see that happening. But I, I don't know that you need to go to Nyla Rose straight off. Like there's a lot of other women that they could utilize for this. Heel heel on the first feud for a new heel champion is a little weird. Nevertheless, it does seem like AEW is using her as a catalyst for change for the women. And if that's the case, then really good for them. I appreciate that. Mark Sterling and Jade Cardigal cut a promo backstage about making money. And she said her signature line again, that's literally all that happened. So that's literally all I'm going to say. Uh, The wingman said Orange Cassidy is the worst dressed wrestler in AEW and offered him a makeover or a beatdown. Alrighty then. So you're taking one of your most over faces who was just in the main event of one of four pay-per-views you have each year and you're dropping him all the way down below QT Marshall and the factory to the lowest part of the card? No, that is not how you book. That is a bad piece of booking. This is her crap. And then lastly here for AEW, they will be doing four straight special shows in their return to touring, Road Rager in Miami on July 7th, two nights of Fighter Fest on July 14th and 21st in Texas, and Fight for the Fallen on July 28th in Charlotte. So the commentary is quick on this one. It's just tough to feel like any of these are actually special when they're doing four of them in as many weeks. It's like the quote about quarterbacks. If you have two quarterbacks, you have none. If you have four specials, None of them are that special, right? So I think starting off with one in Miami is a great idea and maybe bookending it with Fight for the Fallen that on July 28th in Charlotte, that's probably a good idea too. But I would have saved Fighter Fest for a special event later in the year, do the two-night Fighter Fest in the middle of August, do one you know, special dynamite each month or something like that. But just shoving them all up front like that, it's weird. And I don't know how they're gonna build four cards that are all going to feel special. I guess you could do like one title match on each show in the main event, but then how special is that show if there's only one title match? So that's kind of what I'm getting at. I don't know that it's the best idea, but look, the truth is we just have to see AEW give us the cards and book it, and then we can actually decide. But right now my line is if there's four specials, ain't none of them that special. Now that's the full breakdown from AEW Dynamite. Let's move on to the rest of the show as promised. We'll start with NXT UK. We're just going to talk one match, the main event 
the women's championship, Kaylee Ray defending the women's title against Miko Satamura. After a burst of offense by Satamura, Ray answered with Satamura's own Death Valley Bomb. So Satamura came right back with Ray's gory bomb finisher. Ray legit nailed the challenger under the chin with a super kick, but Satamura just laughed at her. Uh, commentary did a great job selling Satamura being impossible to put down. Ray kicked out after a Death Valley bomb and responded with a gory bomb, but was not able to cover. Instead, she added a senton bomb and Satamura kicked out at 2.8 despite a finisher and a senton bomb. Miko ducked after Ray tried to use her title at ringside and hit another Death Valley bomb. Ray then tattooed Satamura with a gory bomb vertically into the ring apron for a near fall. Satamura delivered a beautiful avalanche sunset flip powerbomb for another near fall. And after an exchange, Satamura hit a basement roundhouse kick and a third Death Valley bomb, following with her scorpion rising finisher for the clean one, two, three to become the new champion, ending Kaylee Ray's 649 day reign. This was fantastic, and it will be in the conversation for women's match of the year. The storytelling of Satamura refusing to be defeated in her second go at Kaylee Ray and pulling out all the stops to get it done was superb. You could see the real emotion from her and the Japanese style streamers that they gave her to celebrate at the end of the match. Those were a great touch as well. I'd really have to go back and watch, but it was probably better than their first match. And there's nothing to really nitpick here. I think if there were fans and there were people reacting to it, because right now they're taping in an empty studio, my grade would probably be higher, but I'm going to go with a 4.25 stars and an A, just really top tier wrestling and exceptionally well done. I kind of want to actually go to 4.5 stars. It was great match. I, I need to see it a second time, but it's in that range. It's an A no matter what. It's not an A plus, not an A minus, it's an A. Uh, but this thing top to bottom was awesome. Miko Satomura is now the oldest women's champion in WWE since the fabulous Moolah. And you have to remember how many times WWE kept putting the title on Moolah. Not only did they do it, like, I think well into her, I kind of want to say 60s at some point, or 70s maybe, but they did it like a decade before then. She had a long reign, which didn't really need it. WWE at the time should have been building up other women's wrestlers, but Mula was basically the forever champion. I mean, I know Kaylee Ray calls herself that, but for a long time in WWE, it was the fabulous Mula who was the forever champion. And other than her, Mako Setamura is the oldest women's champion in the history of the company. So she, at age 40, not that she's old, I'm just saying that it's notable. Um, so she deserves a lot of credit, first of all, for leaving Japan, coming to NXT UK, then deciding to move there permanently, and she is such an inspiration to so many women on the roster. Uh, Sasha Banks certainly trained on her own and separately years before, but she went to Japan on an excursion during that time where she was off, where people wondered if she was leaving WWE or not, and trained with Satomura. And that has become a dream match. So the idea that one day you could possibly get Sasha Banks against Miko Satomura is just absolutely incredible. So I really hope that uh, comes to fruition and congratulations to Miko on being the new NXT UK women's champion. Now let's go through a couple matches on NJPW Dominion. This is really, they, they, I mean, they did Wrestle Kingdom and they've had some shows, but this was the first show 
since the start of the pandemic that I was really motivated to watch. And that's partially my own fault, but largely their fault because their booking at the start of the pandemic was relatively awful. Um, there's only really one match I regret not seeing, and that's Will Osprey against Shingo Takagi. But I will venture to try and see that, you know, at some point, I guess, this summer. Anyway, this was a card that was relatively short. Most of the matches were somewhat meaningless tag team matches. So I'm going to stick with the two singles matches uh, and we'll go back to front. We'll talk about the main event last. We had Kota Ibushi against Jeff Cobb in a singles match. Nothing on the line. Ibushi nailed a great springboard moonsault outside and a hurricanrana inside. Cobb countered Kamagoye with an underhook, belly-to-belly toss suplex, and then he tossed Ibushi like a helicopter propeller. Ibushi escaped toward the islands with a Kamagoye for 2.8 count. Uh, there were a ton of reversals, and then Cobb delivered Kamagoye for the second time in the match. He also got a near fall. Cobb escaped an inside cradle. Ibushi crushed Cobb with double knees in midair and delivered a second Kamagoye for the win. So this felt like a number one contendership match, even though it didn't officially have that designation. It was well-wrestled. There was some sloppiness and a lack of overall excitement to it. Cobb never seemed like a legitimate threat to win, despite how commentary tried to sell it. Rocky Romero made a great comment at the end that this is a match you could watch plenty of times and never get tired of seeing, meaning you could see Ibushi and Cobb fight like once a month and never get tired of it. And that's true. I believe that is accurate. But I also think they could do better than they did in this match if given another opportunity. So it was still very good, but it didn't rise to top tier for me. So I'm just going to go with four stars and an A minus. And that's not a bad grade. I'm just saying it wasn't top tier. And then the main event, the IWGP World Heavyweight Championship, Shingo Takagi against Kazuchika Okada for the vacant title that was dropped by Will Ospreay. Outside the ring, Shingo nailed Made in Japan right on the floor in a huge spot, with Okada doing a great sell of a near countout. He followed with a big avalanche Death Valley driver type of move, but Okada went on a run with a moonsault and a tombstone before Shingo reversed the Rainmaker. Shingo countered a Rainmaker into a Death Valley driver. Then Okada countered back with two Rainmakers, but Shingo reversed the third and ran the ropes for a clothesline near fall. Okada countered Last of the Dragon twice, but ended up eating a Dragon Suplex and Basement Clothesline. Shingo then followed with Last of the Dragon for the strong 1-2-3 in the middle of the ring to win his first heavyweight title in New Japan. I loved this match. There were limited false finishes. Shingo never got hit with like the finishing Rainmaker, the one that you know is going to end the match. And they picked up the action when there were time calls at 30 minutes and 45 minutes. It wasn't an all-time classic or anything, but it was a great main event, 4.5 stars, the match of the week, and an A. Shingo has largely been New Japan's MVP over the last 18 months, and he really deserved the title here. It's nice that his fans didn't have to wait as long as those who support Tetsuya Naito did. And then once they did support Naito and, and saw that come to fruition, obviously they took the title right off Naito. Ultimately, this new IWGP World Heavyweight Championship has seen some strong champions in Kota Ibushi and Will Ospreay. But it's been a hot potato title. No one's had a reign of more than three months since Naito won in August 2020. That's dating back to the IWGP Heavyweight Championship, the regular one, that they merged with the Intercontinental title. And that was only due to the pandemic that he has such a long reign. So it would be nice to see this as the beginning of reestablishing this in as the top title really in the industry. That's what it used to be, the IWGP Heavyweight Championship. But this, again, the World Heavyweight Championship, it's kind of been tossed around and it really hasn't been the top title in the industry since probably 2019. 
So going back, the title was vacated by Will Ospreay due to injury, but it was also reported he was displeased with how New Japan handled COVID-19 and wanted to return to England for a period of time. He did tweet after this match that the champion was only an interim, which makes it clear he intends to go back to New Japan, even though there were some rumors otherwise. So we'll see what happens here. On that note, as I mentioned earlier, I do need to go back and watch the Osprey-Shingo match, which I was told is incredible and maybe the match of the year. So I will do that at some point this summer when time allows. Shingo called Ibushi out after the celebration and asked whether he wanted to challenge for the title. Ibushi, of course, accepted. And Shingo said they will have a murderous contest that only they can have. This is the match people have been waiting to see, and it's exciting that they're going to go right to it and not wait another seven months. Though we could still wind up there with them fighting at Wrestle Kingdom next year with rematches and stuff like that. All in all, it was a good finish to the show, a solid final two matches of Dominion, considering the card has nothing special. Now, briefly to talk about New Japan, it has really lost my interest over the last year plus, but it usually captures me with Dominion and the G1 Climax in the summer. It looks like the G1 is delayed, pushed past July to August or September. I don't think they've announced specific dates yet. And that could be good because it's going to avoid the Olympics, but it may suck if it coincides with football season here in the United States, because my attention will have to somewhat divert to football. So barring some big news developing, this will probably be the last time we talk about New Japan until the G1, unless that Shingo Ibushi match happens, in which case I will certainly see it. We will stay on top of it, and I will try to also watch Osprey and Shingo at some point here. Uh, And then to wrap up this show, two things really quick before we get out of here. First, the DM slide. This one from P. Turnigan at P. Turnigan. He said, Silver King would like to hear yours and Vintage's take on Mickey James and her upcoming all-women's NWA pay-per-view. I'm rooting for them to do well. So Chris Vanini is not here. I'm just speaking for myself. I'm rooting for them to do well, too. I think it's a great idea. I don't know if I would make it a pay-per-view or if I'm going to, because it's NWA and they don't really have a deep women's division, maybe just make it like 1999 or something like that. That's not saying the women can't put on a full pay-per-view, just they don't really have the roster to do it. So I'm sure they're going to bring in uh, independent people. Maybe they can get some people from Ring of Honor and Impact and AEW, et cetera. I don't know what this show is going to look like. I, I appreciate that NWA is giving Mickey James the opportunity to put on the show. I candidly was very annoyed that she pitched this to WWE and they didn't let her do it because it, they did evolution. It was a success. I know it was, I think, the least attended pay-per-view that WWE's ever put on is, was the report and maybe one of, not a highly watched special or something like that. I'm not totally sure, but it was critically acclaimed. It was damn entertaining and exciting. And the way you establish something like that, if you're WWE, is you do it annually. Every year we have evolution. You build it up and people get excited to see it. They did it once. And they only did it really as a PR move to counteract the blowback that they got from the Blood Money and the Sand shows that didn't allow women. And after the last Saudi Arabia show allowed a women's match, they probably said, all right, we don't need to do evolution anymore. You don't need to segment the men and the women. But understanding that women's wrestling had a hill to climb that the men didn't, that's okay. It's, it's, I'm not going to get political, but there's other things in our society where Even if you believe that equality is the most important thing, you have to understand that sometimes people need a step up or a lift up. You got to put them on your shoulders and empower them in ways that they haven't been empowered previously, not because you 
are going to treat them differently, but because others may view them differently. That's the entire point. So I love that NWA is doing this. I don't know how it's going to turn out. The only way we're going to be able to judge that is by seeing the card, what they end up developing, and how it looks after the fact. But if they can get, you know, Thunder Rosa and maybe Serena Deeb on that card and some Deanna Perrazzo, some of the women from Impact, and they build this up and Mickey James fights, then I think you're going to have a pretty damn good show. You know, don't do, don't, don't go crazy. Do a battle royal in four matches. That's what I would do. And, you know, I'd put that together in that vein. And if they do it, it could be very successful. Um, but I, I, I can't judge it until I know more. The one thing I will say is all the hand wringing over this um, is ridiculous. Like people, anyone getting upset over this is crazy. So you shouldn't be upset. If it's not for you, don't watch it. But I will certainly try if it's a compelling card. And then lastly here, before we get out, there's a feud building in GCW, and we don't really talk independent wrestling that often here, between Nick Gage and Matt Cardona, the former Zack Ryder. I'm intrigued by it. People seem to really love Nick Gage. I've never necessarily been given a reason to. Like, I, I haven't been told, you need to watch this specific Nick Gage match to learn about him and enjoy him. And that's what happened, like, with New Japan and Kazuchika Okada. I was told, you need to watch Okada Omega 1. And then I did, and I fell in love with it, and I started watching New Japan. So no one's ever done that to me, and I'm not saying you guys have to, but if someone does want to suggest a singular Nick Gage match, you can. But I'm intrigued by this because it's taking Zack Ryder completely out of his element, going up against a guy who's kind of a poor man's, maybe John Moxley, in potentially a death match. And if that happens and if it transpires that way, that may be something I tune into. So we're going to have to find out. We'll see what it looks like down the line. But that is um, how I look at it right now. It has piqued my curiosity is the best way I can put it. So that is today's show, a big show, a different show, talking AEW, NXT UK, New Japan, NWA, and GCW all on one show. What the hell are we doing here? But that is what this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast was all about. I appreciate you all listening as always. Before we get out of here, let's break down a few things for you. First, let's talk about our schedule. On Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern, live on Twitter Spaces, will be our NXT TakeOver In Your House Go Home kickoff show. All you need to do is follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast and tune in to Twitter Spaces available on iOS, Android, desktop, or mobile web at 7 p.m. Eastern, on Sunday, and you will listen to us break down NXT TakeOver in your house. We'll talk about the entire card and offer uh, last thoughts on each match. We already have our entire NXT TakeOver in your house ultimate preview that you need to listen to if you have not already. It's the prior episode on this podcast page. So that's your whole preview. The go-home kickoff show is kind of just talking through each match and seeing if there's been any new developments and just kind of going through it and, and having a conversation with you guys right before the show begins. And then immediately after NXT TakeOver in your house, Sunday night, we will have instant analysis for you on this podcast. You can listen to it before you go to sleep or first thing Monday morning. Then Getting Over will be back on Tuesday. It's a busy couple of weeks here with WWE Hell in a Cell Ultimate Preview. That pay-per-view is coming up next Sunday. We'll be back Wednesday with an NXT recap. On Sunday next week, we will have a WWE Hell in a Cell live go-home show preview again on Twitter Spaces. And Sunday, we will have WWE Hell in a Cell instant analysis. That means that AEW Dynamite airing next Saturday 
are going to save that into Wednesday and do an NXT and AEW episode. It's going to be five or six days delayed. I understand that. But really, when you consider all the other shows we have to do, it's tough to fit AEW in anywhere else. We're certainly not going to do it with the WWE show. It wouldn't make sense. and It would be far too long. So that is it. Uh, a reminder here. Yes, follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Don't forget to participate in our pre and post show polls and our Twitter spaces live show on Sunday. And yes, do not forget the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about one thing. So again, that's five star ratings. That's a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps bolster this show. It gets us in front of more eyeballs and ear holes. And hopefully we enter the top 25 wrestling podcast space sooner than later. Thank you all for listening to this week's Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. I bid you adieu and I will see you for our instant analysis show on Sunday. With that, the Silver King is going to leave you with three final words. Bye for now.